Hello and welcome to At The Flicks. Usually this podcast is your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. However, as this is our holiday special, we are giving you a rest from our views as we allow a couple of other people to speak. Firstly, there is young writer-director Theo Hogben, who already has an impressive body of film credits and will tell us about his latest film called A Most Savage Beast. The At The Flicks team got a sneak preview of this film and we can report it's fantastic. Also, regular contributor Lucy returns to discuss her favourite Stephen King films with Jeff. And amazingly, they both have moments of agreement. Right, I'm off to supervise Neil and Jeff packing the car for our holiday, so I'll hand you over to Theo and Jeff. Hello and welcome to another very special interview from your At The Flicks team. Today we are here with Theo Hogburn. Theo is best known as a writer and director, however he has also produced, been a location coordinator, actor and even a props man. Theo is also the founder of Tyrant Films. Theo, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. Is there any aspect of film week you haven't covered in that very impressive CV? Well, I... Basically, obviously, I want to make my own films, so essentially I've got to know how to do everything, or at least I know enough to know that it's done right, so I want to get in every single aspect that I possibly can. So what's your next challenge, and What's the next one you want to do? Basically, I recently made a short film called A Most Savage Beast, which will be out in festivals hopefully later this year, and I'm wanting to make a sequel continuing the same theme as that, and maybe a feature if I can get that together. <laughs> so what was it? that inspired you into getting into movie making in the first place this is the weird thing like everyone's always saying that they have a moment in their life where they thought like you know i saw this film i saw that film and it it struck me that i needed to be a filmmaker and i don't have a story like that i didn't have any major influences i didn't have anyone in my family that was in the film industry i just for some reason always knew as long as i can remember that that's what i wanted to do so you set your sights quite high from quite young then. Yeah, I did. And as we'll see as we go through the interview, I mean, you've got some remarkable achievements, so it's working out for you. I think it's tremendous. One thing sort of I didn't mention when I introduced you was your involvement in music videos. Many aspiring filmmakers use this art form as a stepping stone. Is that how you saw that? Yeah, absolutely. I saw it as a way to kind of experiment and, you know, make a tiny bit of money. I, the thing is that music videos now aren't what they used to be. It's hard to make any money. It's a great way to hone your craft if you're a budding young filmmaker. Grab a camera, find a band, help them make a story, know how to do lighting techniques, know how to set things up, learn how to edit correctly, whatever you need. And you can do that through music videos. And there are so many bands around that want music videos. Do you find then they come to you and say, we've got this song, but we don't know how to do with it? Or do they come to you and say, we've got this idea for a video? Well, it's a mixture of both. I mean, they come from every perceivable aspect. Me, um, I played myself, so I met all of the people I made videos for in open mic nights in Oslo, when I lived in Oslo. Some of them were just friends that I met through other companies. But yeah, mostly it's being on the scene, like uh, going out to the bars, going to gigs and finding those people you said to us earlier that you're from this area and you end up filmmaking in oslo <laughs> how on earth did that come about well i grew up in gloucester and i actually went to school here in stroud 
just down the road. That will prepare you for anything in life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're well set now. So going back to the music video work, what's the one you're most proudest of? Well, I did a lot of work with a band called Mirror Maze, and they're great. For, for us oldies in the room. Yeah. So what, what type of genre are yeah. Mirror Maze? Oh, hang on, they're, they're Norwegian, aren't they? Well, actually, the lead singer's English. Um, there's a cellist who... I th- what? what? No, no. Norway only produces... Death, death metal. metal. That's right, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, no cellos in death metal? No, this, yeah, it's hard rock, this one. Oh, um, right. Yeah, I think, yeah, the, the drummer, he's from Lithuania. I think they got a new bassist, so I can't remember where she's from. Mean Things was the video, and I it was the first time I had a camera, and I had all the uh, actors and band on set, and the original idea was that we were going to film it in a GoPro in a really tiny bathroom, loads of graffiti and then i kind of didn't like that idea because it was it was essentially boring so was that their idea they were trying to sell to that you? was their idea they were trying to sell to me so what i did was i whacked out my camera which uh just a typical dslr 7d about 10 years old now and i'm not gonna lie it does the job so what i did is i started listening to music i started swaying with music while i was filming it I started hitting the camera spitting it around doing all these crazy movements with the thing and it came out really cool. It really felt like it was going with the music. I was quite happy with that one. And if people want to see that, where can they see it? On YouTube? Yep, YouTube. Yeah. So you've got your own channel on YouTube, haven't you? Just my personal channel on YouTube. Okay. I generally, I stick to Vimeo. I mean, I love YouTube. I love it for the late night countdowns of weird conspiracy theory things. Dangerous rabbit hole to go Oh, then. God, yeah. I could... <laughs> I think it's the deep voices yes. that they always have. There's always there's always some really echoey, reverby music in the background, then a deep voice explaining all the mysteries of the universe, how the government's reptilians, or yep. they talk a lot about Mr. Orange Man, as uh, as you do keep bringing up. Yeah, so, you know. yeah, yeah, unfortunately. So if they want to see the video we've just spoken about, they go to Mirror Maze. Mirror Maze. And Mirror Maze. the track is called? Mean Things. Mean Things. So check that out. And the well, album is it. Rotten Soul. So keeping in with the music theme, let's go into films, you spent some time working as a cameraman on the Norwegian film The Rocker. What was that experience like? The Rocker, it's basically an indie mockumentary. It's essentially Norway's answer to the spinal tap, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically, basically, I guess you could say, quite unhealthy man. He loses his wife and his job and he decides that he wants to go back to his glory days where he played in a punk band. That film was the first film that I worked on coming out of university. Yeah, but it's my first experience in films and it wasn't a professional set. It was more very um, run and gun with 5Ds and 7D cameras, DSLRs. But it, you know, it taught me to be prepared. It taught me how to think on my feet when it came to getting a shot. So if you film something this way, are you going to use that later? What footage are you going to need for safety reasons? You know, making sure you get the right paperwork done. Things like that, basically. The lead performance in the film, did that actor play himself? Yeah, he's actually the producer and the owner of the company, Graceland. I tried to find the film online for you guys. To, I know I've got a DVD somewhere, but... <laughs> I saw the tra- I've seen the trailer of yeah. it, so it's, it it's, it's wacky, it's got its moments, but uh, yeah, it's a great first film to work on. So as a second cameraman, what exactly was that role then? Well, in the, you'll notice in the trailer there's obviously concerts on. So we yeah. would go around and we'd obviously have two cameras filming at the same time. That's essentially all it is, being the second camera guy. So we got the main camera focused on the artists, then I'll go around and pick up B-roll or video of the other artists, things like that. So moving on, so a couple of months ago we spoke to our location manager Midge Ferguson. I noticed you were a location coordinator 
on a show called All Over the Place, Europe Part 2. Now, that title alone sounds like a location manager's nightmare. Can you tell us your role on that and what challenges it presented? Well, luckily enough, like, the show's called All Over the Place, but my job was literally just in Norway. Right. So we had CBBC Glasgow come out to shoot this children's show all over the place, which essentially teaches children about history and geography from around the planet. So what I would do is I would take the cast and crew, I would set them up with hotels, make sure they got to the set on time, make sure they had food, just basic housekeeping stuff. Honestly, out of all the places I've ever worked, the BBC, I'd say, is the nicest. But I've, you know, I've been up and down in quite a few places, but they're hands down the nicest going back to your cv i'm fascinated that you have a credit on there called fixer what is that in respect of and exactly what is a fixer yeah so basically a fixer is someone that arranges interviews location permits transport hotels meals essentially the same as location manager as well everything that the crew would need when they're out of town you do have a varied sort of film career on this because i mean another film that you were involved with was The Snowman that Michael Fassbender starred in that one bit of a troubled production but on that one you worked on props sorry I, I interrupted you there yes, no that's fine yeah no I did I worked on props on that um, and set dressing we basically prepared the sets before the shoots and then took them down when they were finished I uh, did a bit of extra work on that film as well alright so I got to do one scene with uh, J.K. Simmons which unfortunately got cut from the film he's really short as well <laughs> I was like a really professional actor did a great performance in that one scene and uh yeah but shame about the film at the end of the day uh, i i think the problems were that it, it was financing because there were key scenes that were never filmed because they just run out of money well what we think at the end of the day i mean if you look at that film it's just one massive advertisement for norway it all the filming locations the, everything the photography is some of the best i've ever seen yeah in that film. It, it really is amazing but this is this is a weird thing that i believe is story is king Yes. Story is king of everything. So even if you make a film with terrible cinematography, terrible sounds, terrible lighting, it can still be a good film. And there is one film that's a sci-fi film, actually, and it's all based in one room, and it's basically a bunch of people talking to each other. And that's it. And it's a sci-fi film, and it's one of the most deep stories that will bring you in, see the characters in crazy ways, and keep you glued to your seat. It's not it, Cube, is it? No, it's The Man from Earth. What's it about? I'm intrigued. Okay, without ruining it for anyone. I could say spoiler, but I don't want to ruin it for no, you. No, no, just wasn't <laughs> what's the setup. So uh, in the room, what they, what they basically, it's a guy explaining to his friends how he is a caveman that never died. Watch it on YouTube, actually. Right, back into this then? Back into it. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> So that's right. No, no, it's fine. It's a, yeah. it, it annoys Graham no end when he's editing, and it always makes me chuckle. <laughs> um, so, what props did you make for the snowman? Well, we didn't make them. We basically just got them bought in. So, okay. the, I mean, millions of different sources. You know, from everything from eBay to uh, we got a bunch of stuff from a nursery for one of the scenes. Uh, for all these office chairs for the police station that we had. All the stuff on the ice ring. Uh, I mean, all right. unbelievable amount of sources obviously going into making a massive feature film. Were you involved in any of the scenes of Val Kilmer? No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, the, the reason I asked that is because it looked such a bad dub on Val Kilmer. I was really curious as to what was going on on set. Have a look at it. Check out the Val Kilmer scenes. They're really weird. But if they were filming, I generally wasn't there because right, we okay. did everything before and afterwards. So our, our break was <laughs> yeah. when, when everyone else was working. It must be pleasing to you that all of your stuff that you've done 
and that you've been in control of is much more successful and much more coherent than the snowman. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's good. And that brings us on to your production company, Tyrant Films. Now, when did you create that? A couple of years back when I was living in Oslo and I wanted, a, obviously, a company to put all the music videos and all the small things I was doing behind. Um, that was Tyrant Films and I registered it on the day. And a bit of a weird name. Um, I was going to ask you, yeah. where did the name come and from? who is the Tyrant? tyrant. Yeah. yeah, who is the Tyrant? So... Um, I guess we're going to talk about a few other films I'm planning and have done recently. But essentially, most of my films will always in some way depict a god or a deity or some anthropomorphic being of some kind. And I wrote a feature script, which was called I, the Tyrant, which is about the devil coming to Earth and losing his memory and basically being a good guy. You've seen Lucifer on TV, yeah? Yeah, that, well, the annoying thing was that I wrote this a good couple of years before Lucifer came out and oh, I right. sat there watching that going, great. There's another film that's even closer to it, which was He Never Died. Have you seen that? No, I uh, so I think it's with... Henry Rollins. Okay. Yeah, so that film is essentially... Henry Rollins from Black Flag. He's the lead, lead singer in Black Flag. Oh, the band Black Flag. Oh, I thought you were talking about the series. Oh, this pirate series. Yeah, yeah. See, I'm more, I relate to that. I loved that series. Yeah. Like, I thought that was quite underrated. It got overshadowed by Game of Thrones. Toby and... Stevens. Yeah. yeah, it was great. Toby Stevens, best James Bond on the radio ever. They've been doing a whole series on Radio 4 based on Fleming's books, set in the time period of the books. And they're amazing. Stevens makes an absolutely brilliant bond. At the Flix is always keen on promoting charity work and your promotion of childcare Thailand is important. How did you become involved with the charity and the work with founders Yanni and Kim? Basically, in the quiet times, uh, when I wasn't working on films, I worked in bars. So, you know, as all creatives end up doing at one point. Anyway, while working in this place called Dr. Holmes in Yailo, uh, which is middle of Norway, it's a ski resort, I ran into a DJ there called Kim, became friends, and then he found out obviously I was a filmmaker, and later on he's like, well, we're going to Thailand, I'm thinking about making a documentary. You want to come meet the me and the other founder and discuss it? So I did that, and then we got like a... Basically, we paid for our own flights and things. Kim and Yanni set up some accommodation out there for me, which was fantastic. Like, I was expecting to go out there and live in a shed. Like, I was fine doing that for the documentary. Yeah, the place I had two bedrooms and a pool to myself. So yeah, I was, like, yeah, like, nice yeah, like yeah. going to orphanages and living in that place. I was, oh, my God. But the place we were staying, uh, Bangsarai Nordic Resort, they, um, they help out a lot of charities when they can as well. And they also helped people during the flood a couple of years back. And uh, while out there, obviously we visited the orphanages and AIDS clinics. Documentary is, it's quite happy-go-lucky. And the thing is, I went out there expecting to obviously do something, not morbid, but um, I mean, it's not a happy subject matter. The thing that surprised me was that these charities, they're doing their jobs so well that a lot of people out there are actually living quite comfortably. Like, the word's getting out. People are generally improving and moving in the right direction in terms of helping the weakest and poorest members of the society. So that was a, is a real culture shock. We spent about five days filming. The time we were out there, we managed to source a small crew in Thailand to help us with some of the public shots because you're not allowed to obviously work there. But what we wanted to do, obviously, was promote the charity and get more funding in to 
help the uh, help the orphans and people suffering from HIV and AIDS. Got the film and I cut it all together myself. Uh, filmed a lot of it. Did the sounds. Got the soundtrack. And then I tried uh, distributing it. Again, this is a massive learning curve for someone that's yeah. This was my first documentary, so obviously you can see that I've worked in a lot of different areas of film. But when it comes to actually having something completely under you, this was all new to me. Obviously, I stuck it in a few festivals. So where did the title come from? Just another Toy Story. The main goal of the charity is to take toys and clothes to orphans, people who suffer from HIV and AIDS in Thailand. So I thought maybe I can make it about the story of where the toys come from, just another Toy Story. I also thought kind of calling it that might have a bit of a catchy ring to it as well. Yeah, but that basically that's where it came from. On to a lighter topic. <laughs> Fantastic. I love, I, love, <laughs> I love the music you did for the film. What was your inspiration for that? The place I was staying had one channel. And the guy that had this channel had just basically taken a bunch of David Attenborough documentaries and just played them on repeat on this channel. So me, coming in as first I'd time... I'd watch that. Yeah, that was great. I, loved, I mean, I was entertained the entire time. Obviously, I was ed- editing on the fly in my room every night. So we'd be filming all day and then I'd go back and I'd edit throughout the night to the point where the guy who's the producer on the film, Kim, came and was like, Theo, you have to stop working. You have to just go and swim in the pool or something like that. Just relax. But my narration was, I would sit down, I would turn on the TV and it was always a David Attenborough documentary. So I would listen for about, you know, a minute or two. I'm like, all right. And I write my little cue, my little script. And then I try and emulate him in a, oh, in a way, but but trying to bring it round to my own tone, see what I could do. No, it's really good because what it comes across in the film is is very neutral. Mm. There's no judgment. There's no comment. It's just this is what it is, and I, I think that works really good. Oh, thank you. So now I've got to ask this because I always, when I watch a film, certainly at home, as I'll sit through all the credits. So I was watching the credits roll, and suddenly the music credit comes up. A Wang, and in brackets after, seriously. seriously yeah. What on earth is that about? Okay, so, that, yeah, when you asked me about that earlier, I was like, why did I put that? Because I always put something weird in some of my films, like a really good one is like, I'll always put an anagram for a character and it's someone else. Or, you know, I love doing things like little things like that. But yeah, so there was a guy in there called A Wang, I guess. <laughs> I can't remember why or what did, what did, what did he do? Uh, he was music. He, he was music. part of music as well. A Wang. It might uh, okay. So we we actually got some stock sounds from oh, okay. um, from different places online. I, I, at the minute, I use something called Epidemic Sounds. It's the seriously in brackets <laughs> after it that gives it away. I must have been just joking about it and left it in. I'm happy I did that though. <laughs> so we've been very fortunate today in that Theo has shown us his most recent film, still in development, called A Most Savage Beast, and really impressed i mean it's got if you see the trailer it's got a really effective horror buzz to it and the film starts and i'm not going to give any of the plot away so you have to wait until this comes out but it's it's got a almost genteel way that it brings you in and then it throws surprises on you now i don't want to give anything of this away i'm going to throw that your way theo what do you want to tell the listeners about it it's a short film and anyone out there who actually wants to watch it uh, it will be going to festivals um but hey if you want to you want a screener send me your details and i'll see if i can arrange something for you basically the film like i said every film i make is about some kind of god or deity in human form this one's no different when you watch 
Do I really want to give it away? Do you recognize no, it? No, 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 it was overwhelming how much stuff because I was expecting to do something a lot smaller. The, it wasn't too hard for the actress to portray things because obviously I went through it with her in rehearsals beforehand. So and she was such an amazing actress that she knew what I wanted. I described it to her. We blended really well, actually, which is super important. Where did you film it? Most of it takes place in Oslo. <laughs> okay. So being a first-time filmmaker, you want to write something that you have access to and that will not give you. A a massive cut out of your budget. Really good lesson which I took from Rebel Without Crew, a book by Robert Rodriguez, because that book teaches you that the answers are through implementation and experimentation and learning things yourself, making a bunch of short films and learning from your mistakes. You had a fair number of different sets that you were using there. You filmed in a different number of locations. <laughs> so, like I said, taking places that you know. Most of that is done in bars. We had about a week's shoot. We also built uh, a few sets. So you'll see the character has a bedroom, which yeah. is a bit out of time. So we made it a bit early 90s, even though it's set in the modern day. We wanted to seem a bit backwards. And the idealism. There's an idealism behind yeah. the main character without going into it. And that, that factors onto that. And of course, you make an appearance in it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I had to do the, uh, the old Hitchcock, the old Peter Jackson, like just shove my face in there at one point. Well, you don't show your face, so it's shot from the back. I, that's very true. It is actually, yeah. And a line of dialogue. Well, oh, yeah. Of words. yeah. It's basically, it's Amelie, but far more screwed up. Yes, that dark, is a much, good, much darker dark, version of it. Dark, much darker version of Amelie, I would highly suggest. I would say jet black version of Amelie. <laughs> yeah, good grief. You say this is going out to festivals. Any dates in mind, anything? Nothing, nothing uh, as concrete yet. Uh, one thing you've got to get used to as a filmmaker is a lot of rejections from festivals. I've entered a few horror festivals, but the way I classed... The thing is that, like, obviously, without spoiling it, because it isn't actually a horror film. It has... Elements, yeah, horror, dark vibes, yeah, but it's not. Uh, that's the thing. It's so when it, so technically, it is a drama or a romance, even. So it's definitely well worth seeing. Just talk a bit more about the making of this and, and where it went. So this film has actually been in production for five years. Yeah, five years. <laughs> Uh, so principal you're a slow writer <laughs> yeah incredibly you know funny thing I can't even remember writing it I, uh, I, I did it in one night that, that kind of thing after a fever dream so principal photography took a week and we had about two weeks planning before that so all that stuff was done within three weeks then I sent it to my editor first time editor so she edited the rough cut but unfortunately then she had to drop out anyway so it went to the editor it, and then came back to me and I started trying to edit it uh, and it, then my computer broke uh, so that was didn't, didn't get fixed for a few months and then um, I sent the hard drive to Robert who was my dear and then Snowman hit. So he was one of the camera assistants on Snowman. And the production schedule uh, was an absolute mess and everyone was working their butts off for 
a really, really long time. Wasn't actually able to get my hard drive for ages back. And then I finally got that back. And then I was floating around Oslo doing odd jobs, trying to find an editor. And I was kind of, I was quite alone. And I couldn't find anyone to do this thing for me. And at this point I was looking at it and getting sick of it. And at the same time, my first sound guy dropped out. So I couldn't actually, <laughs> I couldn't use him anymore. Then I moved location and I moved location. I think in total about three times I've moved before I came back finally back to England and at this point I'd almost given up hope like it was like I I don't know what to do I'm so sick of looking at my film it's driving me crazy it's like this thing that should have been done yeah a week or two afterwards and here we are three four years later at this point finally I managed to save up and buy a computer I started and I finished my edit finally finished it got it locked down and then I went to a colorist who said he could do it for me who was one of the colorists from Fantastic Beasts. Uh, wow. Yeah, I know and I was I was so happy. I was super stoked to have this guy on board. So I sent it to him and yeah he gave me like a time scale about a month month went by hey man uh, how's it going west film another month went by eventually three months went by oh sorry man i can't do it so <laughs> yeah, that, yeah right thing was at this point like i'd almost given up hope i was like i you know i'm supposed to be a director and i can't even get a little short film done eventually girl contacted me through instagram of all things Uh, a colorist just on the off chance uh she was looking stuff so i said yeah hey i got this short film i really need it colored so i sent it off to her she did the thing in a week and she did it to an amazing standard Uh, yeah yeah so we've seen it It looks really good yeah Yeah. exactly oh at cheltenham film festival i did all the sound myself as well post sound and i'm not a sound guy like i said i wear many different hats but essentially i'm i see why now yeah i'm a master of none but uh, like th- this thing about being a director, it's about pooling the talent around yes. you and yeah. getting them to do it. So you know enough about them and you know enough about the subject to know what you want and how to do it. But unfortunately, you will never have the pinpoint creativity that someone that ser- just focuses on that will have. And then, yeah, I've got a sound designer now uh, working on it. So hopefully, fingers crossed at the end of the month, it'll be 100% complete. So what's left to do? Sound design. Just the sound design. Just the sound design, and that's it. And then I can finally rest that And you've film. got somebody on that. Y- yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, I just... It's the Chinese incredible. democracy as a short film. <laughs> it's, it's just the amount... As you said, you, you had it filmed. Yeah. You had a script done and filmed yeah. within weeks. Yeah. It's, I, I just, it's one of those things, like, I could say a bunch of excuses and I could say it's all these little things, but at the end of the day, it's just... It certainly does. So where do you see your future going? More shorts or going into a, a feature? Uh, oh, I'd love to go straight into a feature if I could. Do you do your own scripts or would you look to somebody else to, to, to pick up maybe something that somebody else has written? Oh, for me, I'm not the best. <laughs> I'm not the best speller in the world or anything like that. Like, so I'd love, I'd love to just be able to write my things, scribble out the ideas. Cause I, I know the ideas are there. And to me, all the script stuff is just, it's, it's filling. And I'm, I'm, I've never been the best at it. I'm okay. At sh- I'm great at short scripts, but I've never really pushed myself to do a feature. Honestly, I'd love to have a partner that I can sit down and bounce ideas off of. Cause you know, sometimes it gets lonely. You're doing this. You've got a full-time job as well. Do you ever get time to relax? <laughs> no, my father thinks I'm lazy. Actually, but <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm always on the go. Always. What's your next immediate project? Hopefully, it's going to be the short, the sequel to this film, *Savage Beast*. 
Okay. I haven't come up with a title, but I was thinking a thirsty beast, but it's a bit on the nose. So same actress back in it? No, this one will be a male uh, actor, and it will follow the same theme of um, deities, gods, and okay. um, anthropomorphic beings. Where would you like to film that? Uh, in my head, I did. I originally thought Oslo because it's not the first idea I've had with it, but. Honestly, place that fits my vision doesn't matter where it is. Okay. Uh, I have an idea of what I want. It's very in in my head. It seems very French. <laughs> so, well, it's been an absolute pleasure, and we do look forward to seeing a most savage beast really hitting them at festivals. We look forward to hearing more about your projects, oh. and hopefully, working more and talking to you more in the future. Oh, I'd love to come back, Theo. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Theo. Uh, thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Theo. That was a wonderful insight into your career. Make a note of that name, Theo Hogben. I am sure there will be plenty more to come from that young man. Now, let's catch up with Lucy and her guide to the movies. This month, Jeff and Lucy discuss their favourite films of Stephen King. Hello and welcome from your At The Flicks pod team, all of us here, that includes Lucy. Now, for the last couple of months, we've been talking about the films of Stephen King. We spoke about the two pet cemeteries, the female role models within some of the greatest Stephen King films. This time it's personal. Both Lucy and I are going to talk about our favourite Stephen King films. Now, that excludes things that we've spoken about in the past, So Carrie is out, unfortunately, because it would have been in mine. But we're going to bounce around, each of us, what our three favourites are, and then look at what three do we want to see that we haven't seen to date. How are you doing, Lucy? I'm doing great. It's always nice to be back. How are you doing? Oh, very well. Thank you. Very well. Enjoying the summer. So you up for the challenge on this one, Lucy? I think so, yeah. Yeah, three favourite Stephen King. Let's alternate on this then. What's your number one? You're going to like this, I think. My number one's The Shawshank Redemption. Oh, okay. Everyone's number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, brilliant. I, purely because I'm so overwhelmed that it's been at the top spot on IMDb for this length of time. Like, it's just stayed there, you know, on the top 250 list. Yeah. Like, you look at it, and obviously other numbers switch around, and, you know, new releases come out, and, you know, there are some surprises, but it's just stayed there. Yeah. And I just think that's such a wonderful thing. It's also interesting because it's one of the only Stephen King films that doesn't have any supernatural or horror elements to it but it's still fantastic you know a lot of the things that we have spoken about like Misery and Carrie are very rooted in horror very rooted in that kind of thing whereas Shawshank is mainly about friendship and about freedom. It's also on my list so we're we're both covering the, the same one and to be honest that's no surprise it's such a great film and Graham and I have been on Gloucester Radio speaking to Nikki Price, one of the afternoon presenters who's doing this whole thing on film. And um, we spoke about Shawshank and we yesterday we were on talking about the Green Mile. And it, and it was quite interesting that 
The Green Mile is a prison movie which has the supernatural elements that we've spoken about. Shawshank doesn't. And one of the things we took in on that was a whole list of people who had said, this film changed my life. It helped me through a very difficult period. This one chap had said, I had a copy of the video with me for years because it felt like an old friend in the room. And if ever I felt down, I would put that on. I've read that a lot of people compare it to like an almost religious experience. I mean, I'm not religious, so I can't sympathize with that, but I understand why it might. It's a very profound and very kind of, you know, Andy's a bit like a messiah to some people. So it's, it's a very interesting film. That's a really good take on it because wherever Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins go, almost every day, both have said, people say to them, thank you so much for making that film. It changed my life. I mean, that must be just a bizarre, as you say, quasi-religious experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I just think it's just, there's not a lot you can fault about this film, to be quite honest. And, you know, obviously, as film fans and fun critics, we try our best to, you know, pick into things and you kind of can't. Don't really have a lot of criticisms about Shawshank. I don't know about you. Is there anything you would change about it? I would, if I was forced, you know, either listen to Neil Rabbit on for an evening or I had to list my top 10 films, I would list this in my top 10 films. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Neil's shaking his head here. Um, <laughs> but but the, so would I. So just to come back to the people come up and say to them all the time that Morgan Friedman and, and, and Tim Robbins, that it's been one of their greatest films of their life. It's really interesting that when Morgan Friedman met Nelson Mandela, what he really wanted to talk about was the Shawshank Redemption, because while he was in prison, he said it gave him great hope. So even people like Mandela think it's a brilliant film. I think it does a lot of good in critiquing like the justice system. And I think a big example of that is Brooks's character, who makes me cry every time. Um, um, because that's such an upset and seeing, you know, his inability to just adjust to the outside world after many years have passed and he doesn't know how to cope outside of prison. Criticism of how they didn't get any support with that. And, you know, I, that, that suicide scene is probably one of the most upsetting ones I've ever seen, to be quite honest. But it's an important one. Yeah, Graham, you had a, an important, when we were in the radio, an important thing to say about that, the way he was clutching the, the chair. It's one of those films that when you watch it again, you see so much more detail. And when uh, Brooks is in the bus, if you actually look at him as he travels into work on the bus, he's really gripping the back of the chair in the bus, hanging on for dear life and slipping away. That moment in the uh, suicide scene, he actually, his hands go open. And is that just that nice piece of, oh, that reference is back. But there's just so much good. It's such a well put together film. It's, it's just a masterpiece. I think the bit that gets me every time I watch it, you start the film, you go almost half an hour in and it's unrelenting. It's dark, you know, you've yep. got... This guy, who may or may not be guilty, you don't know at the beginning, it's set up to show you that he's yeah. guilty. He goes into prison. It's a horrible place. You know, there's there's rape going on. Yep. People are getting killed by the guards who are just brutal. And then suddenly you come to the scene where they tar in the roof. And there's that moment where Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, could have been thrown off the roof by the guard, and he spins it around to the point that after they finished, he's buying them beer. To me, you go from dark to light 
And it, it's just fantastic. I agree. I think Tim Robbins' character of, of Andy is obviously a very intelligent man and he uses that to not only his advantage, but to the advantage of overall prison culture as well, because he does so much for the people around him. You know, he improves the library. He gives them beer as a reward in exchange for help in the prison offices with their taxes, essentially. And it's very clever on his part. And obviously his eventual escape was also very sneaky as well. And they never saw that coming. So no. I just think if it weren't for his quick wittedness and intelligence, it would have been a very different film. <laughs> but no, I totally agree that the tarring of the roof scene is, is fantastic. You're right, it's that shift from darkness to light, and it's a very important part of the film. I mean, I remember when I saw it, it, it didn't come to Cheltenham. I had to go over to Gloucester to watch it because it was limited screens. Because the film hadn't done that well in the States, they were hoping it would pick up on Oscars. It never got an Oscar. At the end of the day, Warner Brothers would be congratulated because they're the ones that put the, the video out at the time. And they thought, this is actually a great film. We will oversubscribe this video. It become a massive hit. I saw it on video and was absolutely blown away by it. It's just one of those where you just sat at the end and went, wow. And cheering with Andy when he gets out yes. into the river and, and you're going, yeah, come on, come Andy. On. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Oh, yeah, that scene where he's on his knees in the yes. rain. Yeah, brilliant. It's so wonderful. And you know, again, it, it, it makes you emotional. You're so happy for him. Yeah. And it's just everything has just led to that moment. <laughs> it's, just, it's so wonderful. It, it, honestly, it makes me choke up every time I watch it. Like, I know exactly what's going to happen scene by scene, but it chokes me up every time. That's the mark of a good film. It, it's fantastic. Yeah. And as I said, I mean, there's so many people that have said dark experiences in their own life. It gives them hope, which is what it's about. Now, we are going to be spoilerific as we go through this thing, and we are going to talk about endings. And I think it's quite important that we talk about this ending. Now, on the radio, we couldn't do it. But the ending of the film was not the original ending that Darabont had in mind. Do you know that? I didn't know that, actually, no. So Darabont's ending was the Morgan Freeman character on the bus traveling to Mexico. And, you know, he said, well, I hope I see him. I hope, I hope, I hope. And you just see the bus and it fades out. So you've got then Morgan Freeman has narrated the film all the way through, potentially an unreliable narrator. You don't know. You know, there's this ambiguity. And the film company said, no, that ain't going to work for us. We need a better resolution. So they went back and filmed the scenes on the beach in Mexico. So they weren't originally done first time around. And it just makes it so, to my mind, so complete. No, nope. no. Nope. No, you don't think we, so? we dis, we've disagreed on this a, n a number of times. I don't agree. The whole point about the film is hope. And at the end, there, yeah. there is no hope. You, no. It's, it's resolution. I don't want resolution. I want more hope. I want my hope to join the film. That's what, yes. the, to me, it would have been great if they stopped it on the bus and then you hope they meet. And then it's a nicely rounded end to the film. Yeah. You agree with that, Neil? I think so. Yes. I mean, it's it's the it's the whole thing about belief, isn't yeah. it? Belief is useless if you know what the answer is. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I think that might have been a better one. Yeah. Leave it. But on, I mean, on no um, conclusion. How, and just how can we argue with um, with uh, IMDb's top film for the last <laughs> yeah, yeah, 30, before, 30, 20 years or so? How long before, IMDb before, is out? Before I come back on this nonsense, <laughs> oh. uh, I'll pass it over to you, Lucy, for your view. I, I think I'm with Jeff on this one, unfortunately. <laughs> no, no, fortunately. Um, I, I think it was interesting that, you know, they did have that resolution because when you have hope, you want something to come of that hope. Exactly. And with that, 
some kind of conclusion like that, I just don't think it would have had the impact because, you know, these two men are from very different backgrounds. You know, Red has that fantastic monologue about how he resents everything that he did when he was young. And he was and, you know, he thinks about that all the time. And uh, what does redemption even mean and all that stuff? So it's just nice that they kind of were able to meet again in a position where they were probably never even going to meet in the first place had like, you know, Angie not been incarcerated. So no, it just works for me. Yeah. It's just an ending. It's one of my favorite endings. And maybe I'm wrong, but I, no, I don't know. You're I not it. wrong. It's a wholesome thing. It's very nice. It needs that conclusion of the two bringing back together. And I think that had he remained on the bus and it, the ambiguity of them not meeting, it just, after gone through two and a half hours of shit, like he, you know, like he yeah. says about crawling yeah. through the tunnel, uh, yeah. I, just, I just don't think that, that it had the power that, that the ending now has. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's tremendous. Lucy, your thoughts on the performances? I think it is one of my favourite Morgan Freeman roles. I mean, obviously, Tim Robbins is, is the lead, but Morgan Freeman's character really stood out to me as, as Red. One of my favourite monologues, I just think he's wonderful, kind of hard to warm to at first, but when you do, it's a very kind of, it's a nice experience. And that the friendship between him and Tim Robbins is just wonderful to witness. I, I can't fault the performances, to be honest. I think they're all great, to be honest. I mean, there's nothing I can say other than they are fantastic. You know, it's just, it's one of those that it's just, every time I watch it, it just blows me away. I don't know about you, but. Oh, I can't argue with anything you're saying. Yeah, Yeah. it's hard to like, you know, you can just shower them with praise and it's honestly hard to criticise anything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I hate voiceovers, but the voiceover in the Shawshank Redemption just works. I'm just completely hooked from the first moment. You know, I go, all right, okay. And it's just so so eloquently done and so clear and concise and it's just well well written characters like clancy brown yep william sadler you know these guys are just brilliant there's just there's not a false note in there there at all absolutely james whitmore that plays brooks again great great performance right so we've both covered our first film (laughs) so we might as well go to your go, go to your number two then Sure. Uh, funny, I was really hoping you wouldn't go any further with your Green Mile comment because that was my second <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping to shut you up there. Um, so yes, uh, I really want to talk about the Green Mile because I absolutely adore this. It might surprise you, but it's got my favourite villain of all time in it, which is obviously Percy Wetmore, who is awful <laughs> and is the epitome of you know, the faults in the justice system because he's related to someone, you know, people turn a blind eye and he can just be as awful as he wants to be. And I think, you know, his presence is just so ominous and so horrible. And he's one of my favourite characters. But every time I watch it, I get angry because of him. <laughs> he's just horrible. I think the other thing is that he just wants to watch somebody die. His reason for being there is pretty, pretty disgusting oh, as well. Yeah, I mean, he just he, wants to watch them fry. And, yeah, and he's like, scene is horrible. It's just horrible. And I think, you know, there are a lot of scenes that he does going into spoiler territory that, that really, really upset me, such as crushing the mouse to death, breaking the guy's fingers with a with a bat on as well. Oh, yeah, Michael uh, Cheetah. It's just no remorse for anything at all. It just proves that sometimes human beings can be the most evil. You don't need a supernatural element to make somebody evil. And I think, you know, he is just pure. There's no good bone in his body from what I can see. And I just think that it's, it's an absolutely stunning performance by Doug Hutchinson. I wanted to really highlight the fact that this is part of the reason I love the film so much. Yeah, I mean, Hutchinson is is amazing. In there. He brings out in that role a small-minded pettiness. Whatever organisation you work in, you will find oh, Percy yeah. Wetmores. Yeah, yeah we've, we've met, met, we've met we've loads, loads of, the... of Percy Wetmores. <laughs> yeah. It's 
what you would call the banality of evil. Yeah. That he's so yeah. small-minded yeah. in the in the things he does and his approaches. And when you think, I want, only want to be here because I want to watch somebody die. Yeah. And then because that person laughed at him because he pissed himself, I'm going to make his death as unpleasant as possible. Yeah, the banality of evil. Truly shocking. What else about that film really appeals to you? I think obviously John Coffey, for me, is one of Stephen King's best characters just because of his just pure innocence and the fact that he shouldn't have been there in the first place. You know, he's so gentle and kind and he and interestingly he uses his powers for good. And I was gonna ask you, is there any other King character that uses their powers for good? Because I can't think of any. John Smith in the Dead Zone. I've not seen that right, so tell me about him. So John Smith, great name by the way, he's out with his girlfriend, they're both teachers. He's driving home from a date. A truck pivots across the road. He can't avoid it. The car crashes. He's in a coma for five years. And when he wakes up from the coma, if he touches somebody, he can see into their future or past or even their present. The first time he wakes up, a nurse is in the room. He touches her and says, get home now. Your house is on fire. And she gets home and saves her daughter. There's a whole story about a serial killer, which is in part of the book which actually spins off into Cujo. But the main part of the film, a presidential candidate played by Martin Sheen, John Smith in the film played by Christopher Walken shakes his hand and realises this is the guy that's going to press the nuclear button. And In fact, when King was asked, why doesn't he write about Trump? He says, well, I already have. I've written The Dead Zone, (laughs) uh, which is a scary thought. And it's a great film. It's David Cronenberg directed it, which is quite an odd choice. But the the characterization, Sheen and Walken are just amazing. The book was written in the early 80s. The film was made in 83. And the resonance to today's political scene is horrific. But it's a great book. But there's, there's much more to it than that. What I like about King is that you've got these people like John Smith who are doing good, but there's underlying narratives as to why they're doing it. So let's take John Coffey. Again, fortunately... We were in Radio Gloucestershire yesterday talking about this. And Coffey is, I think, having watched the film again recently, is an angel that's been sent to Earth for whatever reason. And he's got these powers, but he sees the corruption of humanity. And that's why at the end he says, don't rescue me. I want to die. I want to go back. And there's little things all the way through it. Like whenever he performs one of his miracles, Darabont has the camera go up and look down, like God looking down on Earth. And when he's watching the Top Hat film at the end, if you watch the camera work and the light coming from the projector, it makes a halo around Michael Clark Duncan's head. So yeah, I knew about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you've got this whole religious Im- imagery. Now, Darabont actually toned down the supernatural elements of, of the book into the film so that so when they do the brain tumour of the prison warder's wife, there's a confrontation of a devil against an angel that's going on there, which isn't in the film at all. Yeah, uh, and I think he makes a difficult decision, obviously, to then transfer it onto Percy, which could be seen as morally justified based on how awful Percy is. Um, so I think, though it's a horrible thing to give to somebody, I think, you know, I, I can't blame Coffee for doing it, much like I can't blame Carrie for what she did to her mother, you know. It's one of those, you know, kind of people getting their comeuppance things almost in a horrible way. <laughs> yeah, and again, using the religious aspect, that's very Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's have a look at performances again. So we've mentioned a few. What other performances stood out for you, Lucy? Sam Rockwell as, as Wild Bill, obviously, is a very is a very iconic character. Um, I 
a lot of pain and a lot of sadness in this film in every sense of the word. And I think, you know, regardless of how you feel about either of the two inmates, I, I think that both of their deaths were, you know, pretty tragic things, unfortunately, in the sense. Maybe Coffee thought he was doing the right thing in Bill's sense, I don't know. But yeah, it, it's always been a moral question for me and it's one that I haven't been able to answer. Um, it always just messes me up. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 yeah, on that I see where you're coming from. But I see if you take the premise that Coffee is an angel and he'd been there, certainly in the book, you've got the indication he's been there for at least 200 years, essentially wants to go home. And it's interesting, his comment when watching Top Hat, he said, you know, these are angels. Yeah. So it's it's triggering memories with him of where he wants to go back to. Coffee, if he is an angel, then it's a very Old Testament angel in the way that he pre-planned what he was going to do with the Percy character to exact a revenge on, you know, the Sam Rockwell character, which he didn't need to do because Rockwell was going to face, you know, while Bill was going to go to the electric chair, but he felt justice ought to be dealt dealt with more immediately. I would agree with you. It's a great film. So I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll throw in one of mine. Well, we've already had Shawshank, so I'm going to throw in Christine. A oh, great film. Yeah, and so I saw the film before I read the book. For you, Neil, it's about a possessed car, mate. Okay. Yeah, just saying. I knew you wouldn't have seen it. A possessed car, and the film opens with a car plant probably in Detroit or somewhere like that, and a guy gets badly injured while building the car. So you get the feeling this car is bad to start off with. And then it goes through various people. So it came out in the late 50s, and then by the time of the film, which is the early 80s, this Plymouth, not that I know much about cars, but it was a Plymouth, attracted this lad who only had one friend, had no girlfriend, was socially inadequate, bullied a lot at school, but him and the car were almost made for each other. What I like about the film is Keith Gordon's performance mm. as Arnie Cunningham, which I think is just tremendous. You, again, what I really liked about it is is that age, 16, 17-year-olds, when your whole perspective on life changes. You know, you've got your mates, everything's male-dominated, but it talks about sex, cars, travel, all of these sort of things come into it. And it just really struck a nerve. And even after reading the book, and the book has so much more depth, oh, again, it's my favourite book. Favorite King book, I still love the film, and it's mainly because of Keith Gordon's stellar performance. The thing is with Christine, like, I don't think I love it as much as you do, so I don't really have any strong opinions. But I remember you touching on the fact that it's more about a coming-of-age story mm. than it is about anything else. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. more, And that I picked that up more when I read the book. Yeah, I haven't read the book, unfortunately, but it, it, it's one of those that's on my, like, never-ending list of things to read, unfortunately. But, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's a great film, and I think it's... Yeah, it, it's more about the boys than it is about the car, which is very interesting. But the car's more like a symbol of sort of like, you know, they've had it for such a long time and all that. It's uh, Yeah, it's definitely not one that I have very strong opinions on, unfortunately. I've seen it in a while either, but it, it's great that it's on your list. I think, you know, you have clearly such a passion for Christine, which is really nice to see. To me, it was like Carpenter. I always had the thing, I like John Carpenter movies, but I always mm-hmm. felt he couldn't get oh, the yeah. characters right. Whereas with Christine, oh, really? he got the characters, he got the right actor. It's just a shame. Well, in one sense, a shame that Keith Gordon has stopped acting, but he is a good director as well. So I think that that's really good. But I highly recommend the book. There's much more about why Christine is possessed in the book. It's not the way it's done in the film. There's something much more fantastical, 
but nasty in the book. And, of course, the ending of the book is much bleaker than what you've got in the film. Yeah, I've often found that with King novels. They tend to have a much bleaker overall like story. You know, like, for example, there's a lot more gore and misery than there is in the film. So I just think it, I'd love to read the book for that reason. King is one of the only authors that can actually make me squirm and can actually make me feel that level of dread. Your comments on John Carpenter are interesting, though. Do, do you feel like that about Halloween, about the characters in Halloween? I think Carpenter's characters, for the most part, I've got a whole thing about these classic horror movies where they draw the characters almost as black and white. Worse with things like Evil Dead and Texas Chainsaw and there's whole relationships that go in on in those films that you don't know at the beginning, that you know later on, that you should have known at the beginning. Halloween is different in terms of you follow through with Jamie Lee Curtis's character and, and you get a, a good picture of how she's developed. But if you look at films like The Fog, Escape from New York or even Dark Star before Halloween, characters aren't that well delineated, in my opinion. Let's take Snake Plissken, Escape from New York, was a classic, iconic character. But isn't that essentially Clint Eastwood? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's the Clint Eastwood persona. You don't know anything about Snake Plissken. This guy is supposed to be this great war hero and bank robber. You don't know anything about him. It's just you lock in on the fact he sounds like Eastwood. Whereas I think with Christine... And following that, when Carpenter went on and made Starman with Jeff Bridges and Karen Allen, they were really strong character pieces. Carpenter's a great visualist, and Raimi's a great visualist in, in like Evil Dead, but this, this whole thing with characters uh, around them sometimes that, that tend not to work for me. So what's your third one? Third one, I don't know if you've seen it. It's uh, 1408. Yes, I've seen it. Ah, great. Because it is one of the underrated Stephen King films, and it is, like, the only classic horror on this list, you know, in terms of, like, you know, Shawshank and Green Mile aren't really horror, whereas this is. Um, so it's interesting to discuss this. I think it's a fantastic twist on the classic Haunted Hotel. It's got John Cusack in it, who plays uh, Michael Enslin. He's a struggling writer who basically tours the US looking in like haunted hotels, writing about them and trying to make a, a quick book off, you know, oh, this is a scary place, whatever, not doing very well. He gets a note in his PO box that's like, oh, don't visit um, this room. And he's like, why? So obviously he goes to it. It's the Dolphin Hotel in New York. And the manager initially won't let him go in. They have a really hilarious argument between the manager, Samuel L. Jackson and John Cusack. He gets in the room. And then once he's in, he realizes that the room is playing on his individual fears. And in his sense, it's a really tragic loss that he had in the family recently. And it just descends into madness from there, basically. So a very, very interesting film. Yeah, no, it's good. It, it constantly surprised. But I can give you a real bit of trivia here. I yeah, yeah. I saw it in a cinema as near to where the fictional 1408 would be than anything. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Cusack is great in there. Oh, he's uh, great, yeah. And what's interesting about the choice, again, compared to Shawshank and Green Mile, it's about characters and characters having to make choices. Mm. You know, and, and they've gone through trauma and how they deal with that trauma. And it's the little things in this film as well, you see, that get, get me. It's like when he's looking at the picture on the wall, did that happen? And then it just gets, just goes into overdrive. Oh, definitely. I think it's his gradual descent into madness as well. Like when he hallucinates seeing the manager in the mini fridge and starts screaming, I want my drink. And it's just, it's just, he just goes nuts. Like, and you kind of, can't blame him to be honest <laughs> because it starts out with like really sort of subtle things you know like the chocolate's being moved from his pillow 
and then it's back again and then the windows close and then it's open and he's like okay what the hell and then eventually everything just descends into really really personal things like when his daughter's on the tv and he's saying that and you know he gets a um, a fax and it's his dead daughter's like nightgown it's like jesus christ like it, it <laughs> just gets so dark and i love the fact that two endings as well and i'm interested to know if you knew this no i didn't know this so the original ending is when he obviously just relents and burns to death in the room the new one he gets out of the room and then he writes about his experiences yeah. and he gets back together with his wife and all that so it's kind of not the same <laughs> you know so i think the original ending when he dies is probably my favorite one just because of that kind of tragic full circle-ness of the whole thing that changed because the preview audiences didn't like that yeah yeah exactly that's right people wanted you know him and his um estranged wife to get back together and write the story and whatever but you know, that's not what Stephen King stories are about. You know, he's renowned for his very bleak ending, so it just felt very out of place. And I didn't like it when I watched that ending. I was like, oh, never mind then. <laughs> that's it. I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's the ending I've seen. I oh, realize really? now. The, yeah. The one where he writes the novel. Yeah, that was the end that was the original yeah. ending, wasn't it? In in that was the yeah. film ending. But I didn't realise it was another one. But it's I like- own a copy of the DVD that has the one that I just described when he dies. That's it. So I must, I must have like the like additional one. That's really cool. Okay, no, that's really good. So I'll, I'll just quickly go on to my third one, "Stand by Me," based on King's story, "The Body." Uh, I haven't seen this one either. <laughs> you've not seen it. You're in for a treat. One of the most quotable films you'll ever see. Richard Dreyfus is narrating the film. It's, so the film was made in the in the, the late eighties. He's a writer. He's then thinking about the one summer with his friends, where they'd heard that some kid had been struck by a train, and they wanted to go off and see the body. They'd worked out by overhearing somebody, some youth fifties gang, where the body was, and they wanted to see it. They wanted to see a dead body before it was collected up and taken away. So, so they set off on a night trail, really, over these railway lines to get it. There's, lo- there's so many lovely lines in this film. Dreyfus says at the beginning, you know, 1960s is a long time ago, but only if you measure it in years. <laughs> and, and then at the end, when, you know, the mission is accomplished in a sense, I really don't want to spot it if you haven't seen it, so I'm deliberately going to avoid these things. There's a line where he says, you know, that was the last time I was with these four friends. We all drifted off to different things in schools. But life's like that. Sometimes friends come in and out of your life like busboys in a restaurant. <laughs> and I, again, it's a, just a tremendous line. And there's an added poignancy to this film because River Phoenix is in it. You know, what happens to the River Phoenix character as it goes through the years? Is this reflection on what happened to him in real life? I mean, you. I think you'll just love this film. Again, it's been on my list for so long because, you know, it's very hard to keep up with Stephen King because he just writes loads. I don't know how he does it. So there's just so much that I haven't seen and there's loads of classics that I've sadly missed and that is one of them. Check that out ASAP. Great performance. He's got Will Wheaton before, I think, at the time he was going into Star Trek. I haven't Corey, seen it. I'm, Cor- I'm going to put this on my list You've as not well. seen, no, you've not seen it? No, I haven't. Jesus, got to see, let's see this one. Cor- Corey Feldman. That kid that went into sliders, Jerry O'Connell. Jerry O'Connell. The Will Wheaton character is clearly Stephen King. When they camp out for the night, he says, well, you've got to tell us one of your stories, one of your horror stories. And he tells about this kid getting revenge in a pie-eating contest, which I won't spoil for you. And, Neil, you must remember that scene. Yeah. But, again, it's just brilliant. And it's so funny. And it's so... I don't know why I'm laughing type of moment. Just the whole thing about it. And you're just talking about it now. I mean, I've got to go back and watch this again. 
And there is the moment, and watch for the moment at the very end of the film, which doesn't go on to the story. But through the whole thing, Richard Dreyfus has been writing down the story. He's, he's been narrating it, but it is essentially him as a writer making notes on this. When he's finished on his word processor, as they had back in the 80s, before you were born, Lucy, just reaches across and switches her off and said, he didn't bloody save it. <laughs> <laughs> so watch for that moment at the end. It's just tremendous. It's so well done. Great cast. Holy cow, it's a cast and a half. Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, Kiefer Sutherland. Kiefer Sutherland's great. Richard Dreyfus. Yeah, Dreyfus. Dreyfus John Cusack. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, and John Cusack. That was the other thing. So it has a link to 1408. Yeah, I love John Cusack. Uh, and he's not credited in the, he wasn't credited when the film came out. And the reason for that was Rob Reiner made a film called The Sure Thing with uh, Cusack, which is a big hit. He said, would you be in this film? And he said, well, only just as this really small, almost a cameo part, really. And in fact, linking on from this, Reiner made after it The Princess Bride. He asked Mark Knopfler to do the music score for Princess Bride. And Knopfler said, I'll only do it if I can have the hat that um, John Cusack was wearing in uh, Stand By Me. <laughs> so, yeah, he got the baseball cap out of it. But when King saw it first, because the body is a, a very much an autobiographical story, when he saw the first screening of it, he couldn't talk. He had to leave the room All right. and compose himself before he could come back in and talk to anybody, including Rob Reiner, the director. Well, there we go. If nothing else out of this, it, anybody listening as well, if you haven't seen it, seek it out. It is amazing. Oh, definitely. It's very list. Yeah. So the other thing we're going to have a look at is what three Stephen King films haven't you seen that you would watch? Uh, yeah, there's, these are probably going to surprise people. I haven't seen Salem's Lot. I'd love to see Salem's Lot. Which version? Any version. I haven't seen any version. Okay. Avoid <laughs> the second one with I'm Rob Lowe. I'm to watch any of them, yeah. Yeah. The Rob Lowe one is awful. Oh, right, okay. I'll, I'll keep that in mind then. <laughs> uh, also, there's a one called A Good Marriage, which yes. I've been meaning to watch. I think you may have mentioned this Yeah. One to me, actually. I think you did. And then the one with Kathy Bates, uh, Dolores Claiborne, Claiborne is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. We mean to watch that one as well. So the, the two, I mean, two of them are perhaps less unknown, but Salem's Lot is a classic, which is one that I really should see. Yeah, I mean, again, both were done for TV. The earlier one is the best. King didn't like the Nosferatu-type vampire in, in that. I, I think it works really well. Um, mm. I did end up with a glass of wine over me watching that film bit i did not see come in no and i jumped up and a bloody wine has soaked in it <laughs> but dolores claiborne is brilliant for me gerard's game which is on netflix i haven't seen oh, you've seen that one yeah did you enjoy it yeah it's got a really good use of gore in that which i won't spoil but it's very very good practical effects i really enjoyed that right. well up my list now 1922 yes yes that's another netflix one isn't it i haven't seen yeah. that that's either netflix, yeah. so i'm gonna cheat with my last one it chapter two <laughs> you haven't seen it yet. Uh, yes. well, of course. Of course. <laughs> Nobody's yeah. seen that yet. <laughs> no, I know, no. But uh, the casting is amazing. Bill Hader, oh. James McAvoy, especially Jessica Chastain. You know, it was a fan outcry after the first hit that she should be the, that that role, and they they all sort of bought into it. So I thought that was great. So I am looking forward to it. Well, I think we've uh, in three shows done Stephen King to death here. Yeah, it's been fun though. Yeah, no, it's been great. 
So uh, I think we've got a special treat for next time, but we will save that, Lucy. I think we don't want anybody to take our idea, so we'll talk about that uh, separately. Oh, as he teases it for the next show. Teasing teasing everybody, if you're listening. Something interesting coming next time. Oh, right. Lucy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you. Bye. Some great films there, and I really must check out Stand By Me. Although, I remain dubious of Jeff's recommendation, especially when the short story the film was based on is called The Body. Okay, I can hear arguing, so Jeff and Neil must have finished packing. If we survive the holiday, and nothing is certain with those two, we'll be back later in the month with more film talk for you. Hopefully, there's a cinema where we're going so that we can catch up on some of the latest releases for our end-of-month review show. Until then, enjoy the rest of the summer, and as always, thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. We're going where the sun shines brightly. We're going where the sea is blue. We've seen it in the movies. Now let's see if it's true.